really it's about the human connections and how the humanity of things is really things that drive things and how you feel about things will win. Whoever can design the stuff that makes people feel better will win. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Robert Wong, the executive creative director of Google Creative Lab. It's the unit that develops Google's brand through storytelling and design. 90% of the work we make, 95% of the work we make, we reject ourselves. Unless it's great, unless you're proud of it, we don't show anyone. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor. It can be rough to find really great modern furniture and decor that's affordable, feels as good as it looks, and just generally makes you happy. I recently came across Industry West, which is all about making it easy to discover and buy bold design that can keep up with modern life. From dining and lounge chairs to sofas and end tables, Industry West offers high-quality products and goes to great lengths to ensure customer happiness. They also work as easily with the trade, providing industry-best warranty and lead times. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with killer design, visit Industry West. Design Matters listeners can now get 20% off. Just visit industrywest.com and enter promo code Design Matters at checkout. Robert, we're here in South Africa. We are at Design in Daba. We are in the Artscape Arena. We have been feted very properly and very generously by our hosts who took us out to a reception dinner on Tuesday during which we had a nice little chat as we walked around the sculpture garden. And you said something that I've been thinking about ever since. You told me that you had quite a lot of self-confidence and it was something that you didn't know that you deserved to really have, that you had more self-confidence than perhaps you should. And I'm wondering why you feel that way. I think it's true. Um, I think there's two things maybe. One is realizing that you're completely insignificant, like nothing really matters. Uh, hold that truth. I mean, it really is the truth. Like no, you're really insignificant. We're actually really going to come back to that. So uh, hold and then that thought. On the other side, also hold the truth that you are a miracle. Every single one of us that we're here, you are an incredible miracle. So kind of when you hold those two things in your head and your heart, that's maybe that's where some of the confidence comes from. Uh, oh, I'm starting to think, get to, I think, maybe where it came from as a child. I moved around a lot as a child. Yes. Uh, as soon as I was born, uh, I was emigrated, um, shipped off to Holland. Well, you were born in one. China, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Uh, born in Hong Kong, uh, moved to Holland when I was one. Um, and when I was about four, my parents... Um, they were working in a Chinese restaurant and they weren't getting paid because uh, the, my grandfather who owned the restaurant housed us, housed my parents, fed us, and so they weren't getting paid. And they said, well, I don't know, we'll never be able to open our own restaurant if we don't get paid. So they shipped uh, me and my sister back to Hong Kong to live with my grandmother while they went and worked and saved money to open a restaurant. So for three, three and a half years, I went back to Hong Kong without my parents and I was pretty independent and by myself all How the time. How old were you at this point? I was four to seven. Yeah, and, and then, so you have vivid memories of this? I have, that's when I felt like I was uh, uh, my first bit of consciousness, living in the little village. Um, the village is so little, and well, when you think Hong Kong, you think of a big city. Uh, we lived in new territories on the border of China. I could see China, and uh, this village is so old uh, uh, that it didn't have running water, dirt floor kind of thing, and the school was... Um, the church. Uh, interesting story. I grew up Christian because that's all I knew. And, and the class was, uh, every, every kid in the village went to class. It doesn't matter if you're six or you're 14. So it was literally a one-room school yes, house? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and then when I was seven, they opened a restaurant, they saved money, and uh, they, we were able to re reunite with my parents uh, to Holland. So in Holland, was a small fishing village. Another interesting story there is that how Chinese people choose to open up a Chinese restaurant in Holland anyway, back then was you get on the train, you get off, 
if there's a Chinese restaurant, you get back on the train <laughs> until you get off the train and there's no Chinese restaurant. You hop off and you end up in Canada. There. Yeah, um, and then the, my parents are crazy people. They're awesome. Uh, they went to Canada for a two-week vacation in 1976, and at that time, I think a Canadian dollar was higher than the American dollar, and it won like international city of the of the world. Uh, CN Tower is being built, and. You know, they were convinced that, oh, wow, for our kids to have the best opportunity, they should learn English, they should, you know, we should uh, leave Holland. And when I was 10, they decided to emigrate to Toronto, and so they just emigrated, they didn't speak any English. And so I moved around a lot, and everywhere I moved, I'd had to sort of, to not be devastated, I had to constantly tell myself stories that I'm, you know, in school, like, okay, I try to be this, you know, I try to do the best in math. I, you know, oh, I get good grades. So I'm constantly telling myself, okay, I'm smart. Oh, I'm I'm pretty good at running, uh, just for my ego, probably to protect my ego. Well, to uh, help buoy up that sort of yeah, as insecure I, spirit. Yes, insecure spirit. So it probably all comes from insecurity, and uh, um, and also like when I was 10, you know, I would go to the bank uh, for my parents because they didn't speak English. So, so as a young age, I was doing sort of going up be things. Uh, and at the same time, I was telling myself all these stories about myself uh, to prop myself up. Uh, so maybe that's, that's the real reason, just delusional self-talk. You've said that the constant change as you were growing up helped you develop the ability to communicate without relying mainly on verbal exchanges. And what did you do instead of the verbal exchanges? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you look, you read physical cues, you know, and it's hard to imagine for, well, most Americans, I mean, uh, you know, that landing in somewhere and you don't really understand someone, but you have to be with someone and, and you know, survive two, three, eight hours at school uh, in a foreign language. So you just constantly, you constantly have to be looking for cues and you hear intonations. Um, so a lot of communication, I think, happens at a subtext uh, sub-language level. Um, and this is actually an interesting thing. When I was in Holland, I had a diary that I wrote in and drew pictures. And when I look at it now, I have no idea what I wrote. I can't read my own writing. But I see the pictures and I, rem I remember the memory. Uh, I have memories of conversations I've had, really detailed. They're all in English. Uh, but I know you know, for a fact that I didn't speak English at the time. Uh, so all that communication is happening at this other level. And I remember uh, realizing that even people's expression of when you get hurt, you know, in, in America, you say, ouch. In Holland, you say, ow. And in Chinese, you know, Chinese, you go, ayah. It's like they're all sort of similar, but all very different. Um, so you, I think maybe that also maybe realized how connected we are. You've stated that because you couldn't understand anyone and no one could understand you, you came to realize that most of the time, whoever can listen the hardest is the best communicator. And I've had to learn that the hard way, especially doing interviews now, essentially for a living, that in order to really communicate and have a conversation, you really have to listen. And most people don't listen. They just talk, 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 wait for the other person to stop talking and then start talking again without having ever really listened. How did you train yourself to do that? I didn't learn that till later when someone told me that, I think in my 20s, that most people don't listen. Most people are have a little voice in their head that's talking all the time. And while someone's talking, that voice is trying to think about what it sh you should say next. Assessing and judging and yes. filling in and yeah. assuming. And to really listen, you basically have to say, shut up to that voice and really listen. And it's so, so important to, in a relationship, your kids, parents, coworkers, Enemies, yeah, if more people really, really listened, uh, it'd be a much better place. That's part of the reason why I'm looking directly at you, but you're allowed to look a little bit at the audience because 
unless I'm directly interacting with the audience, it becomes really distracting because I have to also not only monitor what I'm doing with you, but also hoping that the audience is enjoying it. It's very hard to be able to hold both at the same time. And I also learned that my best interviews are when I am looking directly at the person. If I do remote interviews, which I rarely do anymore, I usually will listen back and think, why didn't I ask that other question? How obvious, what a thing to have missed. And it's because I'm, you know, looking around and paying attention to other things, which you can't help but do. You know that I have this thing, uh, and I say I listen a lot. I'm horrible at actually remembering anyone's names. And I think it's because when I meet someone, I think most people do this, in the first couple of seconds, and when they say their name, you're probably spending a lot of time just looking, assessing, hearing, and your brain is actually doing all this other stuff. And, you, and if I really care about what your name is, I generally always ask after we've had like a two-hour conversation. <laughs> Tell me your name, your name again. again? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you have the space and time to actually absorb it. As you were growing up, I understand you learned a lot about Western culture by watching television. What kind of shows were you watching? The most sublime best shows like Gilligan's Island, Happy Days, uh, Brady Bunch. It was just what was on TV. But I'll tell you one thing. When I grew up in Holland, we had uh, two TV stations. And it did, the program didn't start until 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock or something in the morning. And it was only on Saturdays. So when I arrived in Canada, I was like, hey, what, so what, when is the cartoons on on the weekend? And I was like, wait, the cartoons are on every day. What you really? What are you talking about? Yeah, what time do you start? Oh, I don't know, six in the morning. I'm like, and I remember the, my first uh, Saturday, we didn't have school. I was so excited to watch cartoons, 10 years old. I woke up at 5.30 in the morning, set my alarm. I went downstairs, had my comforter, and like waiting to turn on TV, and they had the Bugs Bunny and all that great stuff. You've said that even though your parents didn't exactly discourage you from a creative career, in your family, that option didn't actually exist. Why not? So my father was from that village. My mom was an immigrant from China. She never went to school, started working when she was 10 years old, um, was a manager at a garment factory when she was like 13. They, she got paid a dollar a week, I think, and she lived in the room with her grandmother, and the room had like three bunk beds, so six beds, twin size, and they lived on the top bunk bed of one of the bunk beds. And everything, the rice cooker, everything was there. And that's how they, so they came from, you know, extreme poverty, and my dad was from the village. And uh, so for them, making money was the, was the only thing that was a career. There was no other goal. There was no self-actualization, doing what you love, any of that stuff. Um, it wasn't until they actually sort of became middle class that I could even start thinking about that. Uh, most people here are lucky enough that you grow up and you think that, yeah, you can pursue all these things. But um, my mom would tell me stories that, like, instead of telling me stories about someone doing something really moral or with good convictions, she tells me, oh, and this billionaire did this. And, you know, it was all about heroes who are uh, capitalists. And, and so th then, you know, the professions they know, they're pretty ignorant, was like doctors, engineers, lawyers, accountants. Um, and those are the professions I knew. So that's why I actually studied accounting first. Yes, well, we'll get to that in a moment, you as an accountant. You believed when you were growing up that you couldn't seriously pursue drawing because that was for people who didn't get good grades? Yes, I did think <laughs> Tell that. Tell us more about that. That's probably arrogant. Well, I did get good grades. Um, so that's why you couldn't draw. Yeah, that's why I wouldn't become a pursue art. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But I just didn't know that there were professions uh, for people who drew. And so, yeah. You were the first person in your family of any generation to go to college. True. And you began your studies at the University of Waterloo in Canada, where you enrolled in the Masters of Accounting program. Why? Okay. Uh, Why accounting, as, as opposed to engineering or being a doctor or a lawyer? I read that most of the CEOs in most companies, back then anyway, came from a finance background, and I just wanted to be the boss. <laughs> The top dog. Uh, and actually, uh, the reason why I ended up in Waterloo, 
in their high school, you visited like three universities or maybe just one college day. It's not like it's crazy now where your kids go to 20 schools. Uh, you know, I had three schools in mind in Canada and one was Western University and it was known as the party school. And for anyone who's spending time with me, I like to party. Um, especially back then, I was like, I want to go to the party school. But I missed the bus to the party school. Because you were partying? Uh, no, I was too young to be partying. But uh, for whatever reason, I'm usually not late, but I missed the bus to the party school. And so the, it literally watched it take off. And we're in, you know, in front of the uh, high school. There's another bus. I'm like, well, I guess I'll take this bus. And I got on the bus. And like, you know, where's this bus going to? In Waterloo. And that was an engineering school, actually, very famous engineering school that a lot of Google uh, engineers actually come from. We have an office there because there's so many great engineers there. Um, well, not only is it not party school, but it's like 1% women. Uh, but that's, how, that's what I was thinking, to be honest. As a kid, that's all I wanted to do. I want to go to this school where I can have fun, meet cute girls. Uh, and, um, and I got on this bus. I'm like, oh, well, okay, I'll just, there's no choice. There's no other bus. Uh, and I visited Waterloo, and they had this program. It was a uh, master's of accounting, but they have this very progressive program where you go to school for 12 months straight, there's no summer, and then you, get it, and you work for 12 months straight, and then school 12 months. And in five years, so three years of 12-month school and two years of full work, you get full paid, uh, you get a master's degree. Very progressive. I don't know why every school, and maybe I was one of those nerdy kids that didn't need summer or whatever. Uh, but I thought that was so cool. And uh, they had a very strong accounting program. And I was good at math. I said, okay, well, let's do that. That's how I ended up at Waterloo. But at the job you worked at while you were in school, you were, it was a top accounting firm. Yeah. You Clarkson worked Gordon. on the 25th floor of one of the black towers in downtown God, how do you Toronto. This? Oh. Um, and I understand that you arrived every day with, as you put it, your little briefcase wearing a suit. So Robert Wong in a suit. What I would give for a picture of Robert Wong in a suit. You went to work in a suit every day? Yeah. But you know what? It was like playing pretend. A little bit like, oh, now I'm a worker with my briefcase. But I was so excited about it, you know? I had a stack of business cards, my first business card. I remember like, oh my God, my first, I'm like an adult. But you were kind of a kid playing adult. Um, no, it was very, it was actually, it was kind of cool. Um, and I do remember, um, I used to wear an earring. The day before I had to go off to an audit where I had to visit a client, my partner pulled me into a, her, her office and said, um, hey, Robert, just one thing maybe take off the earring when you go tomorrow. And I remember saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, they, they, they're hiring us for our brains. Like, I, there's no way, why would I have, what's an earring? I don't, so I refused to do it. Um, she sent me off anyway, which is testament to her. Um, but yeah, even though I, I was playing an adult, deep down inside, I was probably still a little bit rebellious kid. You said that very shortly after you started, you realized that you were falling asleep in classes and you'd been studying accounting for all the wrong reasons. What were the wrong reasons? Uh, someone once said, people have three relationships with work. One is a job, one is a career, and one is a calling. A job is you literally and there's nothing wrong, no judgment against any of these three. Uh, you know, you literally just have to get the paycheck to feed your family. Um, and then the career is usually a more ego-driven, where your self-esteem comes from. How am I doing? Am I progressing? Did I get promoted? Uh, am I doing better than the next person? Uh, but a calling is where your work, what you do during the work, actually provides this deep satisfaction or it's just translucent to you being and, and you feel content doing that work. And I knew that accounting, auditing, even though I like math, uh, the day-to-day -day that was not satisfying. And, um, and then I realized, well, I should try to make sure I, I'm not just chasing this for a profession to, so my parents could be proud of me, um, so I could afford to raise a family and not have to be like my parents who never saw us because they opened the restaurant, they had restaurants and they basically, if anyone who knows the restaurant business, you know, we're out of school and they're sleeping and they go to the restaurant at like 
10 o'clock and they don't come home till you know midnight. Uh, by the time I'm asleep, I saw them once a week. We had dim sum and that was it. So I didn't want that. I wanted to spend time with my children and the models. I knew from watching all the shows like Happy Days and Brady Bunch was like, you have to get a job. You, you bring a suitcase and wear a suit. So that's what I did. But then, you know, you start reading articles. And I'll tell you, I think there was a Vogue magazine article about Mark Jacobs, who went to Parsons. And fashion design. I'm like, oh, you can do stuff that's creative and make money and be famous. So, this, so now you know how shallow I really am. Uh, you know, be the boss. You know, cute girls. Uh, fame. Fame, yeah. And money. And, um, and you've got it all now, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know what's interesting? I told my mom when uh, I asked them, I said, hey, is it okay if I quit accounting? And it was particularly, I'm probably proudest of that moment in my life, of all the decisions I've made, because I actually uh, wrote some GMAT tests and I was getting scholarships in the States. Uh, for getting my MBA, and I had to tell my mom that, like, hey, I think I want to quit accounting and pursue a more artistic career. And, and I think the only reason I was able to do this, I don't think I would have been able to do this at all if my parents at the time weren't financially kind of doing well. So they were doing pretty well, and only with that, could have had the confidence to even have it in my mind to do that. Otherwise, I never would have done that. So you did. You went to Parsons. Yeah. You, you sort of were following in. And Mark my parents Jacob's were very path. supportive too. I they think were. That, that helped a lot. They maybe because I was confident, they were confident. You know what? Maybe my confidence also came from my mom. Actually, another story I totally forgot. When I was uh, in Holland, seven years old, my mom. One day, I don't know why. She probably read some horrible news that was happening in China. Um, that got her upset, and uh, she kind of kneeled down eye to eye to me, and she said, "Robert, China is fucked up." When she you grow that up, word? it was in English too. No, uh, <laughs> when you grow up, you have to go there and run that country. I'm like, okay. Uh, what a disappointment I am. Uh, but yeah, so I think she fed me a lot of that confidence. She believed her little. Prince, I was the first born, like could do anything. Now I think about it, I probably give all the credit to my mom. Good, I like that. You ended up going to Parsons. You started as a fashion major. Um, is it true that you realized you had no desire whatsoever to make None. dresses while you were in a draping class making dresses? That's absolutely true. Uh, zero, zero. You know, you have the idea of what something is. And then the reality sets in, and the first draping class, I don't know if anyone done this, you get Muslim and you have a mannequin and you start draping stuff and you start cutting. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. And then they realize, wait, I don't even like clothes. I don't, I don't even shop. Uh, I, I have like two pairs of shoes. I, uh, so I'm not a fashion person whatsoever. But I was in, uh, it's a foundation year, and which you do everything, photography, illustration, you know, fine art, and it, color theory. And it was amazing. I've, I, I just loved every minute of every day at school. Uh, and it would spend hours and hours in the library just eating up every photographer, every artist, every sculptor, and uh, reading. I mean, I never treated my whole life, even though I studied hard, I, you know, I, I always wanted to be top of the class. I'm very competitive. Um, I just never dug that deep into education and self-education. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's what I kind of knew I had to do something in the, in the arts. And, uh, and the story how, how I got to be a, a graphic designer was after freshman year, you have to pick your major. And I remember sitting in a guidance counselor office where you have to like, administrative office where you have to like tick your major and submit it. And this is now the last day I could pick my major. It's like 4.55, at five minutes, I'm staring at this card with eight boxes, fine art, Julia design, interior design, communication design, photography, illustration, blah, blah, blah. And I've got, I have no idea. I knew I didn't want to do fashion design. But I, other than that, I had no idea. Everything sounded amazing. And then I just literally did the uh, crossing off ones I don't, I can't imagine. You know, I love photography, but do I want to do it? 
every day. Uh, and then until communication, I didn't know what that was. And it seemed like, okay, that's vague enough. It seems <laughs> open enough. It seems non-committal. That's what I ticked. And uh, so I became a communication design major at Parsons. And then I show up, and the first year, first semester, you realize like, I'm, I'm dealing with type and kerning. I'm like, wait, I, I didn't know that's what this was. Um, but, uh, but it's amazing. At the end of the day, you're in New York City. Uh, that's the other bold thing. It was like, I, just, I wanted to go to Parsons because that's where Mark Jacobs went to, to school. Um, and I have to say, like, if I think back about how I got to where I got to, everything was not really well thought through or thought deeply through at all. It was just, you know, random, and you just try to do less of things you don't like and try to do more things you do like, spend, time with spend more time with people you like and spend less time with people you don't like. And it was just feeling it through. That turned out pretty good. I understand that you had one of your first creative epiphanies while trying to buy an Oral-B toothbrush. <laughs> okay, so this is the first semester, and I'm going to, um, uh, going to all these classes, and uh, I took a, a, because I had all these undergraduate credits, I could take random classes, and I decided to take an acting class. And it was the first time I hugged another man in my life. Not even your dad? Not even my dad. Um, so, like, a lot of barriers were breaking. You know, I was being liberated left, right, and center. And uh, I, uh, I was living in the YMCA at the time in a six by 10 uh, little room. And yeah, I had this old toothbrush. I was like, oh, I need a new toothbrush. And days go by and I keep on coming home. Oh, I forget to buy a new toothbrush. Uh, so I even did the thing of like, you know, I'm gonna throw a toothbrush. So now I'll be forced to have to buy a toothbrush. But a couple of days go by and I forget and I'm brushing my teeth with my finger. Um, and then one day as I was walking home, I walked by Drain Reed and I remember Yes, I have to get a toothbrush. And I was so happy that I remembered. I walked in, walked to the aisle, and Oral-B was my favorite, a 40 soft, and found the, the rack, and I'm looking for, you know, my color, like black, maybe clear, but they only had pink and purple ones. So I'm like, they didn't have green, which is neutral, I thought. I'm like, ah. Oh. So I started walking out the store, and not two steps out of the store, I realized, wait, why can't I buy a pink toothbrush? That's absolutely stupid. And it was epiphany, because I realized there's so many things your mind traps you in, boxes that it puts you in, that are all made up. They're not real. And I, when I realized that, I, I ran back in. I, I actually, I think I specifically went for the pink one. And I plopped it on the counter. You know, I was like beaming with self-satisfaction. You know, uh, I'm so enlightened. Uh, and, I, and I was staring at the cashier, you know, waiting her to acknowledge me with eye contact. And she kind of like, you know, New York, like, she's just waiting for the next thing. You know, I, could just, I remember she's like, what's wrong with you? Uh, and like, I'm buying a pink toothbrush. Uh, it's a little celebration. Um, but yeah, and I know that's a tiny little story, but I think you know, having those moments where you realize that whatever you think is real is not real. It's a construct. We're yeah. socialized to believe certain things, and different colors, even in different cultures, mean the opposite of what they might mean in the culture that you are brought up in. Someone once told me this. I thought it was really cool, and I might do it wrong, but... Uh, it, 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 was a, it was a little story about the difference between Eastern and Western society um, that, well, in Western society, when you go to a funeral, you wear black, and Eastern society, you wear white. Uh, Western society, you write from uh, right to left horizontal. Eastern society, you write from uh, right to left uh, vertically, down. And, and you go, wow, yeah, those two cultures, they're so different. But then the story ends with like, you know, it's interesting though that also how similar they are, that they, both cultures chose the absence of color, and both cultures actually wrote. Um, and so it's, it's actually really interesting how different things are, but how similar they and are. And use symbols to stand for something else yeah. that you then had to process. After you graduated college, I believe you graduated college in 1990. Here's a mystery mm -hmm. that I couldn't find about you. 
You started at Frankfurt Ballkind in 1992. Mm -hmm. What were you doing in first those years? two years? The first year, I uh, started at Polygram Records. As a, I, I thought I wanted to do album covers, but I didn't really love it. And then I got a job at Double Space. <gasps> I didn't even know that. See? Double Space. Which you is, have not that anywhere. Yeah. It's no. nowhere on the internet. Yes. Jane Koster and, and uh, David Sterling. Um, uh, boutique little office in New York. Uh, Famous for like talking head album covers and stuff. Yeah, the um, famous, their famous self promotions. The famous they were both very glamorous and uh, would drape over each other and yeah. have these fabulous. It was definitely my first pieces. like real like design studio. Everyone's crazy, you know. When you have to work, they like, give you pot as a way to you know keep you there. Um, but it was awesome. Uh, but as a Canadian, you get one year of practical training in the U.S. And then after that, you have to be offered a job to stay. And uh, they offered me a job, but uh, one of my best friends at Parsons, her name's Christine Wong. She was a graphic designer and she was in Hong Kong. And she said, hey, Robert, come, come open up a design firm in Hong Kong with me. And I'm like, okay. I actually wanted to get back to my, uh, uh, I felt uh, they call it banana, like yellow on the outside, white on the inside. And I want to you know, feel what it's like to really go back to Hong Kong and live that cult Chinese culture. So I went back and did that for a year, but I didn't love that. So I, and I really missed, more than anything, I missed New York. So I came back to New York and was lucky enough to get, to, get into Frankfurt Balkan. That's a really, that was a really hot job to get at the time. Robert and I met in 1992 at Frankfurt Ballkind, where we both worked. Now, you came in as a superstar. I came in as a reject. I was interviewed by Steve Frankfurt, one of the partners, who thought I was adorable and hired me. Aubrey Ballkind, the senior partner, didn't think I had any talent, so he wouldn't let me be a designer. He insisted that I work as an account director. Oh, I don't know if you remember any of that. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Aubrey hated me, but he loved you. Um, because he was an accountant. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was a math man. Um, how did you first get that job? It was one of the hardest jobs to get in New York. Portfolio. It was, it was uh, I think... A yeah, that's what didn't get me the job. He looked at my portfolio. No one's ever been quieter, ever, having looked at my portfolio than he was at that time in my life. I actually thought I was going to die. He looked through my entire portfolio without saying a word and then slammed it shut as if it were an annoyance, like a bug, and then was like, well... Steve wants to hire you, but I can't hire you as a designer. I'm like, why not? It's like, because you're not good enough. Wow. So hired Robert. Wow. You got my job. Wow. <laughs> you're going there. <laughs> so you were there for four years, and you left and then spent the next several years in what was the beginnings of the tech business. Um, did you have a sense at that time that this was going to be the future of design? You spent quite a few years in the tech business. Yeah, uh, it was a company called CKS. Um, it was actually on the cover of Wired magazine as like the agency killer. Uh, it was started by uh, ex-Apple uh, head of marketing, ex-Apple creative director, and uh, ex-Apple engineer. So they, they were the first company that really bet on business design and uh, engineering. Uh, so a lot of the solutions they had for their clients was, was tech-based. So they sold me when they, uh, you know, they won the pitch for the worldwide packaging system for McDonald's because they created a software program that the design would automatically reshape itself to all the different regions and all the legal requirements of like how large the uh, warning signs are or X, wow, XYZ. Wow, so they did that with an algorithm? Uh, they, no, they, a lot of back then everything was manually programmed um, but so that, you know, Locally, in every country, the managers of franchises, franchises could print stuff out. So I was, you know, because I like to say uh, I'm left-hearted, right-handed, and center-brained. So that appealed to me. I love creativity, but like, oh, that's smart. And I thought, yeah, oh, yeah, they're going to have an edge. Uh, and I remember saying, though, that I didn't think the work was any good. My overconfidence, uh, you know, talking to the founder, uh, Tom Suter, the job was also to run a new office, so it was a chance to open an office and run a new office as the person, you know, where the buck stops there. So I thought that was compelling. Uh, but I remember saying, how, this is how cocky and stupid I was. Looking back, I wanted such an idiot. I was like, yeah, I would love to come to this company, but I don't think the work's very good here. I think I can help, you know. And, and he was like, okay. Um, uh, he's still one of my dearest friends, one of the best people. 
You left there and joined Starbucks as their vice president of global creative. Now, given your long tenure at many of your other jobs, you only stayed at Starbucks for two years. What did you do there and did you enjoy it? So I was a consultant most of my life, right? And uh, if anyone's a consultant, there's a part of it where you really don't own the decision. You know, you do a design or several designs and someone picks. And if they pick the, the one you liked, it's awesome. If they pick the one that you didn't think was great, yeah, oh well. Um, but you, you never own the decision. You weren't fully accountable. Unless you're Massimo Vignelli and you only do one design. One, one design, yeah. <laughs> I actually practice that now. I, that's what I like now. And I think going to the other side, you realize, oh, you have to really own that decision. And I think years and years of always having some, you're not really accountable, you know, as a consultant. Um, so I had to like really learn that hard. And the second thing too is I've never been on the client side and the corporation, the, you know, a company and department and politics and all that stuff. I just was too young to understand how it worked. And a big mistake I made was I didn't ask for help. I didn't want to seem weak and ask for help. In fact, I think I should have asked for more help. Um, my success in that job was kind of mediocre at best and, uh, and I miss New York. Yeah, I was going to say, so, uh, quite a different environment. Yeah. You went back to the agency side, yes. where you worked in advertising for yeah. five years, and then went to Google. So you went back into that corporate environment, and I can only imagine that it's far more political and bureaucratic at a giant place like Google than a coffee shop. Yes and no. The lucky thing is that um, when they hired us, it wasn't like, oh, we now need a branding group or now we need a, they, they didn't know what they needed. So we had a lot of freedom to do what we wanted. And so we were really stealth. We stayed small. And uh, my, my boss and partner, Andy, he understood the whole thing too. Uh, and so to us, we were like, okay, let's just stay independent, be like a free radical in the company and just make sure we do stuff that, have, that has impact, uh, that do great stuff that we're proud of and that has impact. And so we still do that today. So actually we've been, and because uh, we have uh, somehow lucky enough got a close relationship with the founders, uh, we, we operated sort of not within any kind of structure. You said this morning in your presentation that when you first arrived at Google, you were the most insecure you'd ever been in your whole life, which given the conversation we had at our reception dinner, I took really seriously, like, wow, this is the first time he ever felt insecure, really. Why? Well, like the people are really smart there. Is <laughs> I mean, it true I that just, one in nine people has a doctorate? Yes, one in nine people have a And your a honorary PhD. doctorate doesn't count? Uh, yeah, honorary doctorate, no, it does not count. I didn't get that till <laughs> later. Um, no, I mean, people are just really smart, really quick, and they're all super type A, and uh, they all went to Stanford and MIT, and literally the brightest people. So it was very intimidating. You said that you felt that you needed to join Google because you didn't want to trust the future of humanity to MBAs and engineers. Why were you worried? Well, I don't know. I don't think I operate from worry as much as like the opportunity that people from the creative arts could have on those companies. And uh, as long as I was talking about earlier about you know technology but really it's about the human connections and how the humanity of things is really things that drive things and how you feel about things will win whoever can design the stuff that makes people feel better will win and i kind of the cocky confidence side was like you know what google is winning now but if they don't have increased their eq and increase their sense of humanity uh, within the company within the products they won't win in the future. Someone who, who has all the parts, I'm not saying one part, like someone who has all the parts, the best tech, the best art, the best business, they, they will win. And I, that's why we thought, I thought that we could actually have a real impact. Why did Google feel like they needed a creative lab? They didn't. So how did it all happen? Eric Schmidt, who was our CEO at the time, was on the board of Apple. And so he saw what branding and marketing the impact and design had uh, on uh, that company. And he, you know, Google's kind of famous for just hiring the, you know, the best people in any given field. Uh, there's a funny story of uh, uh, our head of 
HR one time was having a conversation with Larry Page, being really frustrated because, Larry, give me some guidance on who to hire because you just tell me to bring the brightest people from any field, but like, that's infinite. I mean, you're not gonna, if I find the best Forrester in the whole world, you know, you're not gonna want the better Google. At which point, Larry's like, hmm, the best <laughs> Forrester. That's interesting. That could be very interesting. So, you know, uh, so that's how they operate. You just find the talent, and they'll, they, they, they trusted that if they get the talent, that the talent will figure out what to do. And uh, because what they had was the you know, infrastructure, the infinite computing power, that could, the scale that could, you know, leverage any particular skill and, uh, you know, turn it into business, turn it into something that's useful to people's lives. So they were like, oh, you know, Eric was like, uh, uh, to was like, we need, we need some designers and some branding people. Uh, and so they actually found me and Andy through uh, Apple, because uh, he was on Apple, and they, you know, we did a lot of work for Apple at CKS, and that's how they found us. I understand, though, that you tend to undersell your group's expertise in branding at Google. Well, expertise is not necessarily a good thing. So why do you try to undersell it? And why is well, it, if they're looking for the best and only want the best, why would expertise be a bad thing? And then why would you undersell branding? Uh, okay, I'll tell you why expertise is a bad thing. Uh, it's Richard Walton who, who wrote in the preface of the uh, Information Architecture book. He says, when you sell expertise, by definition, no matter how much you know, by definition, there's a limit to what you know. Whereas if you sell understanding, it's an infinite resource. And I find that to be so true because when you know stuff, that knowledge will always limit. When you know boys aren't supposed to have pink toothbrushes, it limits your thinking. So because we've had all these years of professional training, we, we kind of understand the basic stuff, then we can improv a little bit more. So I think that expertise can be a hindrance at a, after a certain stage. First, you have to build it up, but then I think it's a hindrance. And then you have to just listen, you know, be attuned to stuff to find the opportunities. And so I understand branding because uh, maybe my definition of branding is a lot of uh, the professional, like step A, step B, step three branding versus real branding, which is just what people think and feel about something. So, uh, I mean, obviously, I understand the power of branding, but no one wants to hear about that as a thing. I, you just make stuff and you show it to the CEO and go like, do you like this? And you go, yeah, I like it. And then it happens. Or, you know, you show them something and they feel something and they go, yeah, let's put that on the Super Bowl. So I think we operate. And actually, if you spend a lot of time with very senior people, the more senior they are, the less patience they have with any of that stuff. You know, you have a couple of seconds to go like, oh, I like that. Ooh, that touches me. Uh, so we skip all that crap. And, um, constantly just focus all that time on making the artifacts that they could get excited about. Do you come up with the ideas for new projects or are you challenged by Our, Larry Page and Sergey Brin to answer specific briefs? Uh, I think it's a little bit, bit of everything, um, but usually not specific briefs. Usually, you know, when they come to us, they go, hey, we're playing around with this technology. Can you come check it out? Playing. Yeah. And then you just check it out. And they, they're not asking you for a name or logo or anything. Just, they, they just figure out what you should do for that technology. Uh, that's one side. And the other side is like, you know, everyone at the lab are constantly getting excited about things. Um, and then they come up with their own personal ideas. And usually it's some marriage of some new thing they discovered, something that they're deeply passionate about already. And they kind of make a project out of it. As long as they also know, they constantly keep in mind okay, what's the strategic value or business value or branding value of the thing, the project that I initiate? How many ideas do you generally come up with in, a, let's say, a year that actually make it to market? Um, I, I've never really done the math. Well, then let me ask it a different way. How much of your work is rejected? Um, oh, rejected by ourselves? Or because I think I would say that 90% of the work we make, 95% of the work we make, we reject ourselves. And that's a great lucky place to be. Uh, a lot of places like, oh, the media is already bought, or we need to have the packaging out in a certain name. And then you, no matter where you get to, even if it's like mediocre or even crap, it has to be made. Uh, whereas we have the, the luxury of like, unless it's great, unless you're proud of it, we don't show anyone that we did it. So 
most of it's rejected that way. And then of the stuff that we're proud of. So that 5%. 5% that of the 5% that we take it out and either shop it around for, hey, you know, uh, do you guys, can you guys build this? Or are you guys interested in building this? Or interested in collaborating with us to work on this? Uh, I would say a quarter of those become things. And some things we put it in the, put it on the shelf or in the drawer, actually in the drawer. Like, this is a great idea. We love it. Let's wrap it up, put it in the drawer. And a business issue comes up years later. And we go, ooh, pull out the drawer. And it goes through. So some stuff sits for years and then it gets made. What is the best example that you can think of of something that sat in a drawer for years? Uh, well, even like Arcade Fire, that the music video, HTML5 music video, we had the idea that we should have a Chrome music video, a browser-based music video, three years before uh, we actually did it. And it was a mix of, you know, finding the right artist, a mix of the technology wasn't quite good enough to do something really cool. That, that was one. What happened with Google Glass? Mm. Sore spot. Sorry. We worked on that. Uh, that's one of those instances where engineers were like, hey, we have this thing. Sergey was like, hey, come check this thing out. And uh, he, he didn't have, ask us what to do with it. He just said, come check it out. And uh, we named it on the spot. And then, because, um, oh, it's cool. It's only one glass. So instead of glasses, let's call it glass. And it feels like a platform because um, we already had Chrome. And then we went away and we made an, a pretend ad of the product as if it was launched a year and a half later you know, through first person. So it had UI in it and, uh, and use cases. And it was this uh, maybe 90 second video. I think it, they, they released it online. And Sergey and the, the team, the Glass team, presented Google Glass to the board, the Google board, with the working prototype, the business case, and our video. And it got a standing ovation. You get a lot uh, of those. No, that was my first one today, oh. I think. Uh, but uh, the board clapped. It was like, this is the future. And, uh, and after the meeting, Sergey brought his engineering team together. He says, you know what? Let's scrap everything we've built. Let's build that video. And they printed out the stills of our video with the UX in it and everything as a roadmap to what features they're going to build and how the UI was going to look. And I didn't know it. I, I heard the story a couple of months later when uh, one of the UX designers came, hey, Robert, I have to show you something. Uh, come check this out. He put the glass on me. I'm like, it was literally the, our UI. And uh, I, I'm like, whoa, yeah, yeah, Sergey's made us build your video. <laughs> and, and it was just all pretend. It was a, there was a, a motion designer fresh out of school uh, who just made that up. So it's incredible. Of course, it didn't really work. So we actually then spent like a, a couple of weeks working with them to actually make a working UX. When there is a failure like that in an organization, do you find, especially with something is, that's fairly rare at Google, at least publicly, do you feel that it changes the feelings about how much risk you're willing to take? I don't, um, I mean, even though it, it, it was a public failure, I think we just jumped the shark. It was not a you know, a mass market product. Uh, we're still working on it right now as a, more of an enterprise B2B thing so factory workers can use it, uh, you know, on the assembly line, et cetera. Um, so I think it will come just like uh, the Chrome browser music video. It might be years until the technology gets good enough or small enough that um, you have good ID that you wouldn't be embarrassed to wear. And um, so I, you know, in a way, I. I don't see it as a failure. Maybe it was a public failure or a commercial failure, but I a think- A snafu. Yeah, but I think we're more excited about the innovation part and what we made. And it, to this day, it's the first augmented reality overhead device um, that actually worked. So you said that, that. You said that anyone that thinks technology is a key driver of innovation is kidding themselves. You said that this morning. If not technology, what is the key driver of innovation? Well, as I said today, you know, it's human imagination, human creativity. The heart. Yeah, the human heart. Um, Why do you think that that's more important than technology? Because we made up technology. I mean, technology didn't make itself. It's humans that made it. Yeah, and uh, actually Sundar, I love this quote he recently said in an interview. He said, I'm a tech optimist, because he, he talks about AI and everything. You know, I'm a tech optimist, not because I believe in technology because I believe in people. And I have the exact same feeling. It's the people that drive everything. 
I don't have enough time to ask you about more than one specific project. So I'm only going to ask you about one that you presented this morning, which is your caption project. Mm. You really surprised me when you said that the telephone, the keyboard, and email were all initially created for people with disabilities. I didn't know that. And you showed how Google is now trying to take the captions that we see on televisions into screens. So talk about how you're doing that and when you think that'll be fully deployed. Um, the science is way too complicated for me to understand. Uh, a lot of the best people in uh, uh, voice recognition engineering and uh, machine learning model uh, hardware building that can stick that on the device uh, so it happens real time without having to go to the cloud and back. All that stuff is all very new technology and I don't think we would have made it done this even like two years ago. So the, so the tech side is making it possible. And after that, it's just once the tech is there, then it's just a UX thing. And, uh, and that's when we, uh, the team worked and researched and worked with the deaf and hearing community and, and realized it was really about like, the, you know, it's another volume control. It's like a mute button, but instead a caption button. Um, and it's pretty accurate. I don't know. I should do a demo later uh, to you. Uh, and, uh, but it's only going to get smarter and smarter. And right now it's only in English, but, um, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take. To me, it's like, oh, it should be in every language. But of course, it, there's a lot of science that has to go into that. Um, so looking forward to that being in all the languages that Google translates in. I mean, this is really one of those moments in time where we see how innovation isn't just making our lives better, but making our lives more possible in, in every way. And that's, I think, the most exciting thing that innovation and technology can provide us now. I have one last question for you. Okay. This morning, at the conclusion of your talk, you shared a story about a little girl drawing a picture of God. And I was wondering if you can share that story again with our audience, but also for my listeners that didn't hear it this morning, because I think it's really quite yeah. astonishing. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great joke. Not mine. Stole it. Uh, but before I even tell the joke, it's about you know, our ability to be able to make up anything, which is kind of the, the theme of my talk. And it's a story about a little girl who was drawing in class, and our teacher asked, what are you drawing? Uh, to which the little girl said, it's a picture of God. And the teacher says, well, no one knows what, what God looks like. To which the girl looks at her and, and beams and smiles and says, they will I'm done. They will when I'm done. They will when I'm done. Robert Wong, thank you for using design to make the world a much better place. And thank you for joining me today at this very special live recording of Design Matters at Design Indaba in South Africa. At 15 years old, Design Matters is now one of the world's oldest and longest running podcasts. And I'd like to thank you for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.